This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. My name's Aaron Miller. I'm a travel writer. And we are going on a hike today. And that is a huge understatement. We are about to trek 12,000 kilometers, about 7,500 miles from Cape Point, the southernmost point in Africa, along the entire east coast of the continent to Egypt in the north. It's one hell of an adventure. Are you ready to walk Africa? Let's go. Taking us on this journey is Mario Rigby. He's an eco-explorer and adventurer. He's become hugely successful now doing that as a job, but it wasn't always like that, as we'll hear. Mario was born on the Turks and Caicos Islands in the Caribbean and spent his early childhood there, but then grew up in Germany and now lives in Canada. So he has this kind of multicultural perspective on the world infused into him. Travel's always been a part of his life. But he found himself coming up to that big 3-0 number of years a little bit lost, a bit unsure of what to do with his life. And we can all relate to that, I'm sure. But rather than just put his head down into the grind and fall into that rat race, he decided to do something crazy instead. He decided to walk the entire length of the African continent. And that is the adventure we're going to hear about in just a second. But first, go and connect with Mario right now. His Instagram is at Mario Rigby, and it's awesome. Same for his Twitter, and his Facebook page is Mario Rigby Official. He also posts really awesome YouTube videos from his adventures. Just search up his name there. And finally, check out his website to MarioRigby.com, where you can also book him for speaking and things like that. So we're just about to get started. But before we do, remember, if you're enjoying the show, please help spread the word. Tell a friend, a fellow explorer, or just someone who needs an escape. We are building a community of people that love the outdoors, that love adventure, and want to celebrate the pure joy of exploring this amazing planet of ours. If that sounds like you, come and hang out, bring some friends. We're going to get on well. The social media is at Armchair Explorer Podcast across Instagram and Facebook. The website is armchair-explorer.com where you can sign up for the newsletter and book trips inspired by the show. Just drop me a line through social or hit me up on the email. I've set up an adventure travel agency to help you plan and book your dream trip. So get in touch. Let's make that happen. But don't worry about that right now, because right now we are about to set off on a seven and a half thousand mile, two and a half year journey across the entire length of Africa. It's an incredible story. But first... Let's hear about why he did it, which is almost as cool as the trek itself. I was kind of looking for a life of fulfillment. I was actually a track and field athlete competing for Turks and Caicos Islands. And, you know, my dream was to compete for the Olympics. That didn't really pan out the way that I hoped. So throughout my time in Canada, I just kept basically trying to figure out what can I do to replace that hugely ambitious dream? What can I do to really, you know, satisfy my purpose, in a sense, uh, or, or my calling? And, you know, I just kept looking, I kept looking. I got into, like, fitness, got into personal training. I had a string of jobs. All of them essentially failed. 
And, you know, I finally came to this crisis and I said to myself, like, wow, I really absolutely need to make a change. Otherwise, I'm going to run into this deep, dark hole and I'm going to be unhappy for the rest of my life. And it wasn't even just about happiness. It was just also, I felt like I could definitely do more. I could be more of a valuable member to society, to humanity. And, you know, then I started to research and look into, well, what are what are the things that I really love? And, you know, what kind of profession, what kind of job, what kind of activities are out there that can match that? And, you know, I kept going back to explorers. It kept, it kept going back to adventures. And I thought to myself, like, wow, you know what? I mean, the, the, the idea to become an explorer is like the wildest, craziest thing you could possibly <laughs> imagine, um, you know, because you just see this in like um, fairy tales and like absolute like epic stories, um, you know, that you hear about like astronauts going into space and, um, you know, people crossing the Atlantic Ocean, all that kind of stuff. It really, really intrigued me. And there was this story that I had remembered, you know, that I used to watch when I was a kid called Black Panther. And T'Challa, this amazing character I remember on the show, nobody really knew about the Black Panther at this time. This was like pretty much, I think it was me, my brother, and maybe 10 other people who would watch this on YouTube. Before T'Challa became the king of Wakanda, he decided I wanted to go on this walkabout journey where he wanted to search for his truth, which was, you know, what is Africa really about? And, you know, he wanted to basically go on this walkabout, which is a very traditional African thing to do. If you look at African tribes, you know, their warrior clan, they go out on walkabouts. They go through this coming of age journey. And so he did something very similar, which really stayed true to African culture, which I admired quite a lot. And I kept wondering, like, why don't we do this in our society, in the Western society? We just like let people go and without any restrictions or rules, go ahead and, you know, do what you got to do in the world. And I think that that can lead to quite a destructive behavior for some people. So throughout his journey, he saw all the beauty of what Africa had to offer. He saw the flora and fauna that enriched his um, idea about what Africa was and who he was. So to me as a kid, I thought that this is the most epic, beautiful story that one could ever, you know, imagine. This doesn't have to be a fairy tale, though. I thought in the back of my head, like, throughout my life. But I never really thought about actually, you know, doing something similar. I only thought about it until I reached this this life crisis. And I thought to myself, you know, I need to change something completely. And in order for me to change something completely, I needed to do something so drastic, so big, that... It will absolutely change the course of my life. And so I thought to myself, why not walk the length of Africa? A, this would be an epic adventure. <laughs> B, there could be some world records in there. C, there aren't any Black explorers out there who are doing anything like this. And I thought to myself, well, why? What's happening? I thought that that's an, a great opportunity for me to you know, unearth. That might be the coolest reason to go on an adventure I have ever heard And by the way, Mario is the closest thing to the Black Panther you will ever find in real life. And I don't just say that because he's 6'4", absolutely ripped and could probably beat the crap out of just about any supervillain that Marvel wants to throw at him. I say that because of why he's doing it, his inspiration, his intention behind this trip. He didn't walk the length of Africa just for himself, just to change his life. That was part of it. 
He did it to understand Africa better, to understand his roots, and through that, perhaps the world and his place in it too. He didn't have the answers at home, so he sought them elsewhere. He sought them on a walkabout. And there are great traditions of that in many cultures around the world, the most famous of which is, of course, the Aboriginal Australians, where it's a traditional rite of passage. And the idea is that to get perspective on life and ourselves and what we really want and how we can find meaning and purpose and become the best of ourselves, we need to leave the security and comfort of our home and go on a voyage, a journey of discovery. Mario didn't know what he'd find, but he put his faith that answers would come as long as he kept putting one foot in front of the other, as long as he just kept walking. And though he doesn't touch upon it too much, in doing so, he would also inspire a whole generation of black men and women, boys and girls, to understand that even though they are shamefully underrepresented in the outdoor and adventure industries, they too can be explorers. And he would inspire us too. He would inspire us to realize that dreams don't have to be fairy tales. What I wanted to do with Africa really was I wanted to see for my own self what Africa was all about. I wanted to go into Africa the same way that T'Challa from the Black Panther wanted to go throughout Africa. He wanted to do the walkabout because he wanted to learn how to be an effective leader how to be an effective member of, of humanity. And so I wanted to do exactly the same thing. I felt like if I don't explore Africa, if I don't explore these places, then I'm not going to truly understand what humanity is really about, where it's going, where it's come from. And then as soon as I was there, you know, then I was able to experience the reality of it. I was able to experience the everyday lives of African people. And because I did it so slowly, by foot and kayaking, I was able to converse with people that normally nobody would ever converse with. And so I was able to actually see tribes and cultures where, you know, people have never even seen foreigners before. That really unleashed so much more passion in me that it led to where I am today. He would start in South Africa near Cape Town on the southern tip of the continent and follow the coast east for more than a thousand miles to Mozambique. And then up through Malawi, Tanzania, Kenya, Ethiopia, Sudan, and finally into Egypt, where he'd finish in Cairo two and a half years later. He would be traveling slowly, human-powered throughout, mostly on foot, but also on kayak too. And because of that, that slow travel, he was able to see a side of the country that most of us never will. The in-between places, the small villages, the wide-open stretches of pure wilderness where few people have walked before. It was an incredible adventure. But like so many things, the hardest part was simply having the courage to begin. It was definitely very scary. It was overwhelming. It was just massive. You know, you're, you know, picture yourself starting at the beginning of Cape Point, which is the most southwestern tip of Africa. You're like, okay, cool, cool, cool. I have two years left and uh, about 12,000 kilometers to go. I remember just the day before I started my walk, I was staying at a guest house. You know, I decided to go on a walk around, you know, in the middle of uh, Cape Town, downtown. And there were these two African guys talking, you know, amongst each other. One was, you know, an older guy. The other one was like a young kid, I think 19 years old. They were talking about politics in Africa. And I was like really curious. So I ended up walking up to them and saying like, hey, I really like your conversations. May I join? And, you know, they opened up the seat for me. And we I think we spoke for like three hours straight. Like it was just one of the most beautiful interactions with a stranger that you could possibly have. 
And, you know, at the end, I told them what I was doing. And, you know, of course, they're shocked as anyone would be, um, especially in Africa, people would be like, you are walking the entire distance. <laughs> so, of course, they were, you know, they were like super curious. I said, yeah, I'm leaving uh, tomorrow at 4 a.m. I'm taking the train all the way down to the to the most southern point in South Africa. You know, the kid asked me, he said, hey, like, can I join you? And I thought to myself, uh, I don't know if I, you know, it's a solo expedition. And then I thought to myself, like, why am I being so strict? And here there's a German coming out of me again. So I, you know, I wanted to put my island vibes back on. So I said, yeah, absolutely. Like, let's do it. And he was just like, you know, just giddy with enthusiasm from the very beginning all the way to the end. We only spent half a day walking together. Because of him, it really like opened up uh, the, the idea of like, you know, I should just enjoy the journey and just have fun and, and go with the flow. And so he has always been kind of my example of how to really enjoy the adventure. I think one of the biggest challenges for me was first overcoming my thoughts, my own thoughts and loneliness. It was like slowly peeling off, you know, duct tape off of your skin or a bandaid off of your skin. It was just like this slow, slow peeling. And, you know, the pain was, the pain was, it was there. It was definitely there. You constantly kept thinking like, oh, okay, like, you know, what's this person thinking? What's that person? You know, I wish I was there. You know, then you start like not looking at your phone anymore at social media updates. You start closing all these things. And so then you start to morph into this person that is living now constantly in the present moment. I would say that for the most part, Africa was like this kind of meditative um, experience for two and a half years. Much like how a monk would meditate up in the Himalayan mountains. For me, it was just walking the length of Africa. If you if you kept thinking about the past and the future and what would happen to me or, you know, what could I have done better? You probably wouldn't make it across Africa. You probably would not be able to do such a journey. You have to be able to let go of these things and live completely in the present moment. You have to think about like, you know, oh, my feet feel great. Like, oh, this beautiful breeze. Because then you start to really appreciate even just the tiniest thing, like a draft of a wind <laughs> hitting your face. It's just heaven to you. This is the other reason Mario is a real-life Black Panther, because the walkabout for him, just like T'Challa, was more spiritual than it was physical. It was a peeling back of the layers, a meditation, a learning to let go of his thoughts and live in the present moment. And the wisdom that that young kid gave him, the kid who jumped at the chance, full of enthusiasm to join him for the first day's walk, was that he should just enjoy the adventure for its own sake, be in the moment. Don't think of the end, of the goal, of the achievement, of the past or future. Just be present. Just feel the breeze on your face. He overcame his thoughts, his doubts. He had a close encounter with a hippo. He learned how to cross rivers with a portable, inflatable raft. He gained confidence. He gained strength. And five months later, he reached the Mozambique border. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. 
Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. As soon as you cross the border into Mozambique, what you do is you enter into no man's land. I would say the first maybe 25, 30 kilometers is absolutely no man's land. Like there are no roads. It's just essentially tracks that go in like 100 different directions. You know, you're going through this kind of savanna slash desert type ecosystem that is just not good for living, (laughs) not good for, for staying out for too long. I remember the sand being really soft and my my feet kind of sinking in. And again, this is like right after crossing the border from like this beautiful tarmac road to all of a sudden it's just like this desolate desert-like kind of land. And, um, you know, I remember running into the first group of people that I met in this tiny little village. And, you know, I remember going into this restaurant just to get a, a grab a, a little bite to eat. And I remember it was filled with, uh, you know, these women and they were dressed traditionally and they were so incredibly friendly. And it was the first time I really felt this like genuine stranger friendliness vibe. Because in South Africa, people were quite apprehensive, particularly Black South Africans were apprehensive of other Black people who were not South African because of the xenophobia that was going on at that time when I was there. Essentially, they were afraid of neighboring countries like Mozambique, Zimbabwe, Zambia, of those people taking their jobs. So they felt threatened. And, um, you know, I could have easily been caught in a lot of trouble because of that. And going into Mozambique, there wasn't that fear. They were just so friendly, like all the way through, from the very beginning, the first group of people that I met to the last people, you know, that I saw. Really, I dearly missed Mozambique. It was such a beautiful place for me just because it was just one of those places where you can see a lot of authentic and, and true culture in, in more of the remote places. And if you go into like the cities, you see this infusion culture with like the Portuguese colonization and traditional African culture, which brings out beautiful colors, beautiful food. Yeah. It was a good time. When I made it to Maputo, which is the capital of uh, Mozambique, it took me about two and a half weeks to get to Maputo, uh, walking from the coast, the border of South Africa. You know, someone decided, oh, I should be on TV. So I had this massive TV interview that I didn't think was going to be this massive seven minute uh, segment on the news. And there weren't that many news broadcasting channels in Mozambique, so pretty much everyone saw it, right? As soon as it aired, I was literally one of the most popular people in Mozambique. Because apparently I resembled their former president, whom they all hail as one of the greatest leaders of all time, because he led them to independence. So I'm like, dang, I look like their former great leader. I look like their hero. And not only, you know, did I look like this guy, but I was also doing my walk across, uh, walking the length of Africa. And, you know, so people would stop me on the road all the time. Like, you know, I think I couldn't make it throughout a day without like at least five to 10 people stopping and wanting to take a photo or just 
talk to me or walk with me or even try to give me money. You know, it was just, it was really intense. It was like, what is going on right now? Where am I? <laughs> you know, it's, it's a twilight zone. I would go into villages where people, you know, it's just like completely remote villages where people are still living in my homes. And um, I remember this one early morning I was walking and it was just kind of like this mist, you know, beautiful red soils, you know, beautiful Mozambican red soil with like these palm trees coming out. Every um, house has a mango tree, orange tree, cashew nut tree. It's just an abundance of, of fruit and vegetation. Anyway, so coming out of the mist of this fog, you know, comes this little, this beautiful girl walking up toward the road. And it looks like she's like waiting for me to walk past her. And she says, you know, good morning, Mr. Mario. And I was like, this is insane. Sometimes you just land on your feet. Second country in, still thousands of miles to go. And he's already a TV star. Not bad. He walked through dusty roads and windswept deserted beaches. Mozambique has an incredible tropical coastline, footprints left in the sand. He took a traditional Dow sailing boat out in a storm and nearly drowned. And he dodged bullets from rebel soldiers after accidentally getting caught up in a gunfight while crossing the Save River. There's actually a video of him on YouTube and I'll link to it. It's not very long, but you see him lying in the back of this Jeep, curled up, bullets just raining overhead. It's terrifying. And he says, very honestly, traumatic for him and a reminder of the very real dangers he faced along the way. But he also made some friends. And it turns out it was lucky he was a Mozambique celebrity. It was actually during monsoon season. And so I I had just finished this long walk. I remember nearly suffering from hyperthermia. Had I stopped walking, I would have definitely um, suffered severely. I finally made it into this like tiny little town and it wasn't really my plan to stop there. I wanted to continue walking, but I was just like, I need to stop. So I stopped into this little shack where, you know, there wasn't any wind. I wanted to protect myself. And this guy, he's like, you are the Africa man. You are the Africa man. And I'm like, what does that even mean? (laughs) You're more African than I am. And I was like, yeah, that's me. He immediately said, Nick, please, you must come save my family. And he had this pure, genuine, like, just enthusiastic, you know, like he just wanted to, like, make sure that, you know, I had the best experience possible. And, like, this is within, we're talking about within a minute of meeting me. So I actually agreed. I said, yeah, sure, why not? Let's do it. <laughs> well, I have nothing to lose. So we go into his, you know, into his home and, you know, so beautiful. So, you know, I was introduced to the family. You know, he had two children. They were so beautiful. Like we, we played together and it was such a, such a bizarre moment, you know. I stayed over the night, but it was the second day that really kind of transformed that, that experience. You know, it was still raining quite heavily. And so he had asked me to stay a little bit longer. You know, and I resisted it, but for a little bit. But eventually, I caved. I caved in. I said, "Yeah, sure, I'll, I'll stay one more day." That was a really cool experience because he wanted to make me this this massive meal. I remember he opened up the freezer, and there's like all this frozen meat, and he took out all of it. You know, and I was like, "Don't you need that?" Like, you know, so he's like, "No, no, no, we're gonna we're gonna make like a, a huge celebration." And I was like, "This is a lot. This is too much, man. Like, I don't want to take your food away from your children and your family." You know, he wanted to invite his neighbors as well. So 
So I stayed the extra day, and you know, before we ended up making the meal, we ended up going all around the village. He showed me, you know, some historical sites. Beautiful experience. Um, coming from a local person who's lived there since he was a kid, and then we went back home, and you know, he was trying to cook up this meal, and the stove just wouldn't work. And what he did was he actually handed me the stove, and he's just like, "Can you fix the stove?" As if like I know how to fix stoves. Because I come from Canada, so it's just like, please fix the stove. And uh, I was just like looking at this, going like, I I don't know how to fix the stove. I'm sorry, but I said, you know what, I could probably just buy the stove. <laughs> so I asked him like, how much is the stove? And he like told me the price, and I was like, this is gonna take a big chunk out of my account, and I need that to survive, right? Because I was working with very little, I had no sponsors, but yet I decided like, screw it, yeah, I'll take a third out of my My account just to buy the stove because, you know, he's serving his entire family, and I think that's the very least that I could do. So I felt compelled to do that. We went into town, we grabbed the stove, we came back, we celebrated, ate the food. It was a beautiful experience. Um, but that's the hospitality of Mozambican people, and it was, you know, it's it's just an example of all the other experiences that I had in Mozambique. I love that story. Of course, by Canadian standards, where he was living at the time, that stove was probably pretty cheap. But he wasn't living in Canada. He was living like a local, sleeping where they slept, eating where they ate, and that was one of the big points of the whole trip to see the real Africa to live as they do. So he had a tight budget that had to last him years, and spending a good chunk of it on this stove cost him a lot. But he did it anyway without thinking. That family needed it more. That was an incredibly generous and selfless thing to do, and you know what? Without a doubt, that's exactly what T'Challa would have done too. Next up was Malawi. It was the first landlocked country that I've gone to, you know, and I had just come from the coast, and I love the water. I love being around water. You know, I'm an island boy, so I was like, I need to have water, and I saw that the Lake Malawi or Nyasa, it's called, runs the length of the entire country. So I thought to myself, well,、uh, I don't necessarily have to be on the coast. I could just be along the lake. And as I got closer, I thought to myself, like, why not just kayak the the length of Lake Malawi? It took me about a week to look for a kayak because, you know, everyone who I, every shop that I went to or every individual who I went to who had a kayak, they essentially just laughed me out of their office. You know, they said, yeah, there's no way we're giving you a kayak. This is one of the most dangerous lakes in the world. We're talking about like crocodiles, hippos, waves that swell up to like five, six meters up high within a minute. And I thought, you know, like I'm not the type of person to quit ever. So the stubbornness in me allows these adventures to happen. And so finally, there was word out, you know, in the universe that I'm looking for a kayak, and it got to these two. Really incredible South Africans were just about to complete the circumnavigation of Lake Malawi. You know, they said, "Hey, Mabiru, we have two kayaks. We can give you any option you want. We're not going to sign any papers or anything like that." All he did was he took out a bottle of whiskey, <laughs> and he said, "We need to finish this bottle together, <laughs> and that will bond us." <laughs> and I was like, "This is this is absolutely great." I asked them, like, "What's some tips that I could have from you while kayaking Lake、uh, Malawi? Since you guys have done it, he's like, 'Bro, just enjoy the moment, enjoy it.' That's all he said. 
enjoy it. And so I've had this like theme of like people just like either telling me or showing me that you just need to enjoy that moment. And I think that really resonated with me because again, I think it's the only way to really survive. You know, when you take these kinds of things too serious, then it weighs heavily on your psyche. So I didn't want to experience that. I wanted to like just really enjoy that moment, the everyday moments of what was going on. And then of course, there's the danger of the hippos and you know, the remote villages where, you know, people have never even seen foreigners before in their lives. So you can imagine how incredible that must have been. I landed into a village. It was It's really spooky, actually. Spooky, but also it can be beautiful. And it can turn out anyway. If the wind was too harsh and, you know, the locals saw you, they're very superstitious. So they could relate that to like, oh, you're probably voodoo ghost or something like that. Or you could be a hero. <laughs> it's like, depends which way the wind is going. It's literally, quite literally. You know, you try your best to play cool and you respect the culture, you respect the, the people, the local people, of course. I remember my first experience, it felt like I was meeting a completely new kind of people for the first time. I essentially just, you know, smiled and did my best to keep my distance. And if they approached then, you know, you still try to show that, you know, you can't be picked on, but at the same time, you're friendly. And how do you do that? There's a fine line. So I think that's the that's the theme of which I had to like constantly learn how to evaluate, which is like, you know, keeping firm, but at the same time being soft. It's like firm and soft. <laughs> it's like being prickly and gooey at the same time. Kayaking Lake Malawi is no joke. It's 363 miles long, 10 to 50 miles wide, big enough that storms can blow up suddenly and create waves easily large enough to capsize your boat. But you can't capsize your boat because waiting beneath those waters are enormous, hungry crocodiles that are literally man-eaters and hippos too, which make no mistake, they may seem a bit like an armored cow, but they are territorial, aggressive, and can swim a lot faster than you can paddle. But that wasn't the hardest thing because as amazing as it was to go into these villages at night, many of which had never seen a foreigner before, it was also difficult. They were cautious, understandably. Who is this crazy guy arriving out of nowhere on a kayak? But that also made it potentially dangerous. One time, the chief of one of these villages he stopped in thought he was a criminal and held him captive until the police arrived and locked him up in jail. He spent two days in handcuffs the entire time in a cell with no access at all to the outside world before he was finally released, given his kayak back and allowed to continue his paddle down the lake. But he made it, and we're going to race ahead now through Tanzania and Kenya. He really upped the pace here and covered many hundreds of miles in just a few months. He spent six weeks in the paradise of Zanzibar, snorkeling, sailing, but also finding out about the tragedies of the slave trade that happened there. He climbed Mount Kenya, Africa's second highest peak after Kilimanjaro, suffering terrible altitude sickness on the way up. And then he found himself at the end of that stretch in the midst of the Lake Turkana Festival, home to the Turkana people, one of Africa's fiercest warrior tribes, but also culturally just beautiful, flowing, colorful robes, dresses, jewelry, amazing dances, music and singing. Until finally, he crossed over into Ethiopia and up into the Simeon Mountains, where he had one of the most incredible wildlife experiences of the entire trip. 
I think it was actually one of the first places in the world that gave me culture shock. And uh, Ethiopia was just like, just so much, just, you know, like in any direction that life could take you, it, it happened in, in Ethiopia. I think from that experience, the cultural experience, I felt pretty much alive. You have to be awake, aware, and you have to be present. And, you know, having that sense going up into the Simeon Mountains gave me even more hyper-awareness because now I'm hyper-aware and now I'm on top of this mountain and you know, like I'm surrounded by these baboons. And so being up in the mountains was probably one of my most peaceful experiences. And, you know, it allowed me to be human. But what I meant by that really was understanding how similar they are and the, the way their behaviors are is really a reflection of who we are as well. The only difference is that we can like, you know, pass on knowledge and, you know, accumulate information in, in a way that's exact. And that's why we have mathematics and things like that. So uh, all we, as human beings, all we've really done is created a sharper tool, you know, and that tool is like our frontal lobe in a sense. They're known for, the males are known for being quite aggressive, actually. I was aware of that, but being in the field with hundreds and hundreds of monkeys was, I think, a moment, I think one of my most memorable moments in Africa. You know, like you just picture yourself in the middle, surrounded by probably a thousand monkeys. And, you know, you're in uh, Simeon Mountains, which is elevated up to 3,000 meters up high. And you're along the Rift Valley and there's this like just fog that surrounds you. So you can't really see beyond 120, 150 meters. And there's these like monkeys that are just like picking grass and um, just enjoying their moment in time. The Simeon Mountains are one of the most beautiful mountain ranges in the world. Grand pinnacles of jungle and stone, sheer cliffs, ravines 3,000 feet deep. The ancient Greek poet Homer described them as the chess pieces of the gods. There's another name for them too. They call these mountains the Grand Canyon of Africa. The views are spectacular, but the monkeys, or the gelada baboons as they're known, are the absolute star. They live only here in these high mountains, and aside from us humans, they are the most terrestrial monkey on earth, meaning that they spend more time on the ground than they do in trees, grazing fresh grass and foraging for herbs, roots, and seeds, which is why perhaps being in the midst of these huge troops, a thousand strong sometimes, surrounded on all sides, was such a profound experience for Mario. He says it was the most human he ever felt being near them, which may seem strange, but what he's trying to get at is the fundamental aspect of humanity, what we really are down in our core. It's easy to fall into the illusion that we're special, that this sharper tool of ours makes us different, makes us better. But being among those monkeys, walking with them like that in the wild, destroyed that illusion for Mario and showed him the truth of what it is to be human. The truth as they saw him, just another animal, one species among millions, passing through. Next up was Sudan. Going into Sudan was probably uh, another culture shock, but in, in a different direction than I was culture shocked into Ethiopia. It was more of a culture shock of I had finally arrived in a place that is, um, you know, Muslim country, but not just Muslim, but Sharia law, like um where there are strict rules and you know even myself i wasn't allowed to wear shorts you know i remember i was stopped on the road and, and asked to take um take my shorts off and replace it with my long pants 
right on the spot. So that was really intense. It was a very confused moment. That was, uh, I think, week one. For me, what I got from Sudan was that these people are some of the most hospitable human beings on the planet. Just incredibly hospitable. And I was taken in actually a lot by the Muslim women that were living there. You know, we would gather together. We would have circle times and talk about trials, tribulations. We would talk about my experiences. I think, you know, particularly these women who I was talking to, they felt trapped, you know, because in the Sharia law, they have no rights. You have no say in anything that you do. And eventually they ended up actually toppling the government. And I remember, you know, it was some of the same women who were in my groups that helped develop that overthrow of the government. Sudan is still struggling. There are still many problems there. But that revolution that overthrew the former president, Omar al-Bashir, who had been in power for 30 years and oversaw a government where women's rights were reduced to absolute zero. No rights, no voice. But then almost out of nowhere, a couple years after Mario passed through, the women of Sudan, many of whom he'd actually spoken with, rose up and they inspired the country and overthrew the government. They were the spark of that revolution. But it's those stories, those women gathering in circles, cautiously at first, talking about change, dreaming of a better future, which are the most important stories of all. So now Mario is reaching the end of his journey. He visited amazing pyramids in the desert in Sudan. He went to a traditional wrestling match. He treks on enormous sand dunes at sunrise and explored markets and festivals and dances until eventually he crossed into Egypt and the finish line was finally in sight. When I finally made it into Egypt, I think I was on auto mode. I think my body had given up, my mind had almost given up. And I think I was just kind of, you know, going through my rounds. I was just walking kind of like a zombie. When I finally arrived into Cairo, it it was a bit of a lackluster experience. And I just rested and I just rested and I just rested. Um, I ended up staying in Egypt for, I think, uh, three or four months. I just didn't want to really leave Africa at that point. So, you know, to me, I felt like I don't have a next plan and I feel stuck. And so, you know, I kind of felt lost in that sense. You know, the takeaway from all of this is that, you know, I got to experience exactly what I wanted to experience, which was the reality of of life, the reality of a lot of people's lives. And I got to learn from all these different people. I met thousands of people from you know, all the way from kings, presidents, mayors to people living in slums, townships and villages and in places where people have never seen foreigners before. To me, that is something I think worth sharing. I think that's worth listening to because not just because it's coming from me, but because it's the voices of, of these African people. And it's a it's a continent that's developing, that's changing very quickly, rapidly. In fact, it'll probably change uh, and evolve faster than Western societies. You know, that's something that we need to take care of as well, because it will affect us how Africa develops. Um, you know, we need to, A, allow Africans to, you know, be Africans, to develop by themselves, for themselves. But we also need to assist because Africa doesn't have the money. They don't have the the tools in order to develop it to a sustainable continent that it needs to be. But if we allow Africa to copy the Western society, the Western blueprint, then we're all in trouble because the Western blueprint, as we know, is incredibly destructive in terms of sociological health, 
in terms of economic depressions, where we allow people to, you know, be poor and starve to death. In places like New York City, one of the most affluent cities in the world, we walk over homeless people all the time. I hardly saw any homeless people in Africa because they all take care of each other. It's that Ubuntu philosophy, you know. I think we can learn a lot from them. And so, what I wanted to do in Africa was not teach Africans, but I wanted to learn from them, and I want to share and spread that message for humanity. He set out two and a half years earlier to change his life, to get out of the rut he was in, to do something huge and drastic that would alter the trajectory of his fate, and he did that. His life would never be the same again. He would never be the same again. But he also set out on this walkabout, just as Tchalla had done, to learn how to be a better person, a better leader, to learn how to better contribute to society, to humanity, and the planet. He set out to learn from Africa itself that ancient wisdom of the mother, and to share that voice with us, the voice of its people, a people rising and changing, confronting a new world, finding its place in it, inspiring us to think about our place too. He did all of that. But actually, the biggest change, the most profound moment, the moment he was looking for all along, happened right at the end, after he had reached the finish line, not sure what his next step would be, and then out of the blue, it arrived. One of the most memorable moments I had in Africa was、uh, actually right after I was done, I was picked up by a sponsor. You know, they reached out to me and they said,、um, "Listen, we're doing a campaign, and." We want you to come fly out to Uganda with us. That's where it really began、uh, for me,、uh, which essentially led me to, you know, the next phase of my life. We went into this village, which is just on the border of South Sudan and Uganda. It's one of the largest, you know, refugee camps in the world. Where essentially what they do is they get former refugee child soldiers. Who's escaped from South Sudan? They bring them over to Uganda in the refugee camp, and they have the school where they educate them at a level that's higher than the global average. And there's a hundred percent passing grade; everyone passes at that higher than average passing grade. They asked me to do a talk, and I was like, "Okay, cool." Like you know, I didn't really think too much about it. I'm like, "All right, I'm going to talk to a bunch of kids." But the the questions I got from them were just were just incredible. I was not prepared. To answer any of those questions, and the question was always, you know, they would say, "Brother Mario, how as we as a people can overcome fear and have the courage that you had to walk across Africa? How how as we as a people can find courage like you? Because you know, the thing is, they have already overcome so much fear to gain courage, just by escaping, just by having the ability to escape South Sudan to go." Past all that trauma, and then to come to Uganda in this refugee camp, you know, and face their enemies and work together with them, and study together with them. That to me was like, whoa! Like, what do I have to say that could be, you know, more brave or more courageous than what they have gone through? So, you know, for the rest of my life, I've always really looked at how do I best answer that question for. People in need around the world, and so that's kind of been the trajectory of my life in that sense. But those kids in Uganda, they they really definitely sparked my interest in in pursuing what I'm doing today, which is you know exploring with a purpose. 
The question that came back over and over again from these kids who had been through so much, who had overcome so much, was how can we overcome fear? How can we as a people find our courage to build a new life, to inspire others to find their courage too? And so all along, as he was walking, searching for answers on how he could give more and be more and offer more to the world, the answer he was looking for was the walking itself. We change the world by the examples of our actions. By walking Africa, Mario showed those children that anything was possible. He showed them and us that dreams don't have to be fairy tales. You just have to have the courage to put one foot in front of the other and begin. Thank you, Mario. Thank you so much for taking us on this incredible seven and a half thousand mile adventure from Cape Town to Cairo on foot and kayak across the entire length of Africa. Please go and connect with him right now. His Instagram and Twitter is at Mario Rigby. His Facebook page is Mario Rigby Official. His website is MarioRigby.com. And he also posts some really awesome YouTube videos from his adventures. So just search that up. And finally, as always, a big thank you to you guys. If you enjoy this episode, please spread the word. Tell a friend, a fellow explorer. Let's make this message our message of unity, positivity, and love for the outdoors grow. My social media is at Armchair Explorer Podcast across Instagram and Facebook. And the website is armchair-explorer.com. So it's time to sign off. But before we do, remember, keep being curious. Keep exploring. Because the more we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive.